Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And thank you for joining us here on AOA, Agriculture of America. Coffee cup is full. We got a lot to talk about on today's program. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up on today's show, we're going to go over the latest meat demand monitor numbers with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University. He will join us in segment two here to discuss what he is seeing for trends there on the meat demand monitor. In segment three, we're going to go back to the cattle industry convention last week in Orlando, Florida. I had a conversation with Kent Backus with the NCBA, looking at some of the recent tax legislation that has worked through Congress and more. We're going to talk about that coming up here after the bottom of the hour today. And then also coming up here in segment four, we are going to uh, discuss more about this week's dicamba ruling in a uh, U.S. uh, district court in Arizona that's taken dicamba products off the table for farmers here, it appears, in the 2024 growing season. We are going to learn more about what's going on and get some reaction to that with the president and CEO of the Agricultural Retailers Association, Darren Kopik, is going to join us coming up here in segment four today. So a lot to get to on the program. Let's kick things off, though, and take a look at what's going on in the markets, recapping the February WASDE report that came out on Thursday. Joining us now, Chris Robinson with Robinson Ag Marketing. Chris, welcome back to AOA. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you're doing well. Yes, sir. Happy Friday. Here we go. So let's try to make the best of a bad situation after that USDA. Yeah, uh, really uh, neutral to mostly bearish report from the USDA. I think a lot of folks were quite surprised uh, with Conab's number coming out early on Thursday, sub 150 on their soybean crop for Brazil, and then USDA only dropping theirs 1 million metric tons. Plus, I know that uh, USDA also raised the Brazil crop from last year. That factored into the U.S. export cut that we saw. Uh, Just overall, not a great report for soybeans, was it, Chris? No, not really, and that's why we've we've fallen to eight-month, nine-month lows. Uh, I think guys are trying to see if the uh, March-May low that we made uh, last summer holds. So that's the only positive. If that holds, we could get a, a recovery. But it's certainly, it's been a difficult couple months, and the 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 flat price is flying in the place, flying in the face of a lot of people out there that thought that numbers are wrong. This is going to be an ongoing argument between the USDA and Conab: who's right, who's wrong. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, all we have is to go on is the flat price. So I would say, you know, um, try and hold steady. There's a lot of what ifs between now and when the planners start uh, turning in April, but you know we've after a couple of good years of you know high prices, it's always difficult to come back to you know three year lows in corn and eight month lows in soybeans. You know there's no two ways about it. Well, and it just feels like that the overall theme here in commodities has been commodity deflation, so to speak, Chris. And, you know, the funds remain record short in many of the grains, corn, beans, especially. And so it just feels like the trend is the friend right now of some of these fund managers that continue to drive these prices lower with all this bearish weight to one side. Right, Chris? Well, you've got the farmer that is long. This, you know, we got a two billion bushel carryout of corn out there, and that's probably the number one driver. But everybody has known about that for a while. 
The interesting thing is the funds, you know, they were long meal. They were had a record-long position in meal. They just got completely hammered. So, uh, you know, they're not always right. Uh, now, currently, they have flipped short. their bet short the greens. They are long cotton. So if they see an opportunity for the trend to change, they will flip. They really don't have a bias. But, yeah, right now it's just one more headwind. You know, farmers always have to deal with supply and demand. The, the uh, speculative funds, every Friday we get an update as to where their positions are. The government lets us know and the commitment of traders. So we know that they're bet short. The only positive I can take away from that is when they are wrong, and if, if the market gives them a reason to cover, they will. And they're uh, sort of – Say you know their pain would be a farmer's gain. So that's the one uh, holdout. If you have something helpful, is that if there's a reason for them to turn, they will quickly buy those back. They can do it all in two, three, four days. Which is why when when we're at these three-year lows and eight-month lows, do not get overly bearish. It's it's because when the market turns and it will, you don't want to be the last person that just sold into the low. So maintain your maintain your defensive position. Um, and, and sort of hunker down here and wait and see. Uh, I've been doing this for 30 years. Generally, we always get a spring or a summer rally. This is the year you're going to have to make sure that when you do get it, that you reward it. You don't do what happened last summer when we got north of $6 corn and everybody said, nope, nope, I'm not going to sell because we're going to eight. So learn from last mm -hmm. year and uh, you know, hope, hope for the best for this year. That's what I can tell, guys. I know uh, here, end of the week, wheat markets seeing a decent bounce off of some pressure from earlier the week, cotton market on the bounce too. So it's not yeah. all bad news. Uh, to your point, you know, hadn't adding some friendliness here. I mean, wheat, cotton, and the livestock trade as well, all looking fairly decent on, on Friday. So that's, a, that's another positive uh, point, I would say, as well, Chris. Yes. Livestock has had a tremendous recovery. Tremendous. We clawed back. Uh, over 60% of what we lost between October and December, hitting three-month, four-month highs. Just, there, again, that's a perfect example. Back in December, people were, you know, furious, and uh, we were on our contract lows. And when it turned, uh, you know, that's the one positive thing about volatile markets. When they turn, they'll give you another opportunity. But I'm not, and I wasn't born yesterday. It's very hard to stay positive when, you know, we've had corn drop 80 cents since uh, October, November, and we've had beans drop $2 since October, November. So I get it. It's no fun. But again, we, the reason the windshield's big and the, the rearview mirror is small is for a reason. Look ahead. Uh, stop worrying about missed opportunities. Let's keep our options open for uh, the rest of the year and, and hope for the best. How about on the uh, energies as well? I know crude oil is getting back up there above $77 a barrel. Any thoughts for you on the energy markets, Chris, uh, real quick, and how that, that could parlay into yeah, grains and livestock? Huge, absolutely. That would be a huge support for actually uh, ethanol demand if we're able to get uh, – the big number for crude oil is 80 bucks. Uh, we stalled there going back to November two or three times. I think if you get north of 80, uh, that would be supportive not only for um, – um, uh, ethanol demand, but also biodiesel, because that's when those prices get higher, the margins get better, and there's more demand for um, for, for that. So that's that's the the positive. But all in all, you know, we we continue to worry about you know uh, if uh, China's economy can turn around, that will be positive for crude oil. If uh, the rest of the world can avoid a recession, that will be positive for crude oil because 
the higher crude oil prices are, it's kind of a thermometer for the health of the whole world. So 80 bucks is a big level. We'll see uh, if we're able to get there. Right now we're trading right around 77. So we have had a little bit of a bump up here in the last five days. Again, hopefully that helps ethanol and biodiesel demand. That's what you can look for. Chris, really appreciate the thoughts and the insight here today on AOA. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Have a great weekend, sir. Chris Robinson, Robinson Ag Marketing, joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, we're going to take a look at the latest meat demand monitor. Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University is our guest, and he joins us on the way right after the break. Back with more on AOA right after this. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. When news happens in agriculture or when the markets are moving, we've got you covered as your trusted voice in agriculture. The team at the American Ag Network has the knowledge and experience to keep you informed on the issues impacting farmers and ranchers. We've got you covered on air, online, and on demand. Find the American Ag Network on your favorite social media platforms and also follow the American Ag Today podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are the American Ag Network. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Get the latest bonus interviews, exclusive content, and more with the American Ag Today podcast. Just search for American Ag Today and give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. National FFA Week is February 17th through the 24th, a week set aside for FFA students across the country to share how FFA impacts members every day. I'm National FFA Secretary Grant Norfleet from Missouri. What better way to show your support of FFA than to get involved in FFA Week? Whether it's in person, on the phone, or via social media, be sure to share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week, February 17th through the 24th. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council.
Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Well, right now, let's get caught up on the latest meat demand monitor. We take a look at this every month and get a rundown of the latest data and the research. And joining us to go through things, Dr. Glenn Tonsor with Kansas State University. Glenn, it's good to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us, as always, here on AOA. How are things in uh, in your neck of the woods, Glenn? Doing well. It's a little warmer, and it's a pretty nice February. You know, we can't complain with uh, temperatures above normal here for February. I know uh, I'm I'm watching grass grow in my front yard in the in the mid south and uh, spending some time up in the northern plains earlier in the week. I mean, temperatures well above normal, so you know sometimes uh, nothing wrong with that. But uh, you know, it makes me think, Glenn, we might have a, a blast of snow before spring truly gets here, right? <laughs> We, we might. Uh, economists struggle with forecasting, but uh, I don't envy the weatherman on that one, so that's very possible. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> Let's take a look at the uh, MDM for this month. And, uh, you know, we've been following this now with you for quite some time and, and tracking some of the, uh, the changes that you've been seeing here when you compile the data. So start things off just with the, the overall theme that you found on this month's Meet Demand Monitor. Yeah, overall, uh, you know, we're referring to the January 24 numbers now, and we can compare those both to the prior month, which is December 23, as well as January of 23, and retail. So think grocery store for at-home consumption. Uh, demand for the meat products we were watching was flat or in most cases down compared to December. Uh, food service was up just a little bit, but not enough to react a lot to. Uh, we monitor financial sentiment, and the vast majority still say their finances have not improved. Uh, I do sound like a broken record. I think I've said that six or seven months in a row here with you, Jesse. But um, I, I think January and I fear here February as well is, you know, those holiday bills are coming due on top of some financial concerns. So there's a little bit of pessimism going through consumers' minds. Yeah, and I, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm hearing a lot of those same things. It just feels like more and more consumers, whether it be going to the grocery store or going out to eat, they're, uh, they're getting more and more concerned with their pocketbook, and that's having an effect. You know, you guys track the willingness to pay uh, here in, in the meat demand monitor, and I, I'm with you. That just seems like the sentiment that we're getting across the country right now, Glenn. Yeah, and, you know, to drive that a little further, you know, the willingness to pay domestic retail, specifically grocery store for at home, was down not only compared to December, the way I said it, but in most categories compared to January of 23 as well. Um I've said this before, and I still stand by this story. I don't think the beef, pork, or chicken categories have, you know, an image problem or quality problem or anything like that. I think it's the macroeconomic situation we're in. Uh, I personally think that's going to get better, or the odds are decent it'll get better as 24 goes on. But here, the first couple months, I think it's definitely a drag on domestic meat demand. I know you look at retail and food service. Uh, any any big changes when you when you break down the different uh, pieces of the market share there in retail or in food service? Whether we're thinking ribeye steak or pork chops or bacon or chicken breast, any any big changes month to month? N nothing major. I mean, there's a marginal increase uh, for beef in particular in food service demand compared to December. So specifically, is dinner meal out of a restaurant. Uh, the demand was a little bit higher for a hamburger meal, uh, as well as a ribeye steak meal compared to December. But it's small. We've seen bigger you know, gains in the past. 
I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the fact that in December there's less restaurant traffic. So we're comparing to kind of a low month because of at-home holiday things. So I think that's more a seasonality play than anything else. I know uh, thinking about price, safety, taste, freshness, those are uh, things that you guys track a lot in the MDM as well. Uh, any changes uh, in that aspect, Glenn? Yeah. So every month we ask, um, you know, over 2,000 respondents. I should interject this is a nationally representative survey. Uh, everything's on our Ag Manager website. We're not going to cover it all today. But taste, freshness, price, and safety regularly are the four most frequently indicated uh, determinants of what protein you put in the basket or what meal you pick. Um, more kind of social issues like animal welfare, environmental impact, a few of the others uh, tend to rank much lower. But that's been the case every month, basically, since we launched this in February 2020. Uh, the only thing that's changed is compared to a year ago, price is more important than it was, consistent with the exchange we've had here so far today. Uh, meat knowledge and personal diet. That's another area that I always like to talk about uh, with you because I, I think it's very, very important just that that consumer knowledge of their meat and the importance they have on, on their diets and more. Uh, you guys track some some data there. Any any changes there of note this month? Yeah, so the, the changes would be is particularly the self-declared diet. So do you tell me you regularly consume, you know, products from animals, so regular meat consumer, a flexitarian, so you have meat, but you purposely avoid it every once in a while, or vegan, vegetarian, or, you know, we, we allow an opt-out or other if you choose not to declare. The percentage that say they regularly consume meat products hit 79% in January, which is up uh, compared to the past. When you add in the flexitarians, which were 11%, you know, some of those two up, you're at 90%. And to go even further, Jesse, um, among those that tell us they're a vegan vegetarian, and when I dive into deep, the data a little deeper, some of them actually told me earlier in the survey that they had meat the prior day. Uh, so that doesn't, you know, it's not consistent. So I actually think the share that's vegan vegetarian is 5% or less. Um, that's important context for our listeners. I know too, I was reading through the report, plant-based proteins and high protein diets remain topics heard or read most about. Yep. To kind of piggyback off uh, what you were talking there about uh, flexitarians, vegans, and vegetarians, et cetera. Uh, talk about some of the trends you're watching on, on the plant-based side, because I think this is very interesting, Cliff. Yeah, and you threw two out of me there that are a little bit different. So I'm going to pick up on the high protein one first. Okay. Um, we actually have some dissertation research. Justin Bean is a student that works with me here that's diving into, you know, the relationship between those that are very focused on their personal fitness. You know, they go to the gym regularly and so forth. How much higher is their meat demand? I think that aligns particularly with the high protein diet discussion you allude to there. Um, that's important to understand. And we're in the process of doing a deep dive. But the plant-based protein one, I think is a little more complicated. Everybody jumps to the plant-based patty and we do monitor that and the demand for that's Quite a bit lower than it was, say, two years ago, consistent with share prices and so forth that's in the media. But but that's not the only plant-based protein that exists in the world, right? So, uh, you know, there's other items besides the plant-based patty that's a little bit more controversial in the meat world. And I think that's probably what people are thinking about when they tell me this is still, you know, top of mind. Uh, having, you know, greens in your diet more broadly, not necessarily the plant-based patty, I think is of core interest to a lot of consumers. I'm going to jump around on you just a hair here, too, because uh, this thought just came to my head as we're talking, Glenn, and I know you do a lot of work watching the, the cattle industry as a whole and more. We just had a cattle inventory report and you know that, that came in fairly as expected, but there's a lot of this talk about rebuilding the, the cattle herd 
and, and with a smaller herd size right now, what could that mean for prices and demand? So, I mean, what are some things you're seeing on the overall livestock side, cattle, and how that could potentially play into you know some of the uh, the prices we're seeing at the grocery store here in 2024? I mean, talk to me about that a little bit if you can. Yep. So we're already on track for the amount of beef specifically you're referring to per person. So per capita consumption volumes in 24 to be lower. I anticipate 25 and 26 will be notably lower because that's where we'll see the impact of the you know heifers being retained is my mm -hmm. current best guess. Uh, to the extent that happens, lower volume all else equal will lead to notably higher you know beef prices here in the U.S., uh, that itself is not a bad thing for the industry. We need to be cognizant of that, right? Um, you could still have stronger demand, but just fewer pounds available. Uh, we'll have some rationing by the market is what occurs there. Consumers that are most price sensitive will be the ones that don't consume as much beef in those couple of years, if that's what happens. Um, I suspect that'll get talked a lot about in the media as beef prices go up, but that's pretty basic supply and demand. I fully expect it to occur. Uh, to the cattle producers that are listening to us here, Jesse, I want to interject. We have a lot of Excel-based decision tools on our Ag Manager website, and this isn't about the MDM, but other resources we have. One of which is is a net present value tool to help you understand basically economic value of adding a you know heifer or retaining a heifer on your ranch. I encourage you to make use of that and related resources when the time is right for you to make your own expansion decision. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know uh, you guys have a lot of great info and a lot of great. Uh, uh, research tools and more, as you mentioned, at the agmanager.info website, not just the meat demand monitor, but some of those other uh, great uh, pieces of, that, that folks can use as well. So uh, thanks for mentioning that again, agmanager.info. Glenn, uh, real quick, final thoughts uh, for us before we wrap it up here today. To keep it light, everybody should go there and get some purple. It's good for your soul, Jesse. That's good. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am optimistic that 24 is going to improve on the domestic meat demand to bring us back to the meat demand monitor. Uh, and we're going to hopefully see financial sentiment improve. And I think that'll be the driver of it. Fantastic. Well, it's a partnership with the uh, beef and pork checkoffs. You can find the latest MDM and much more agmanager.info. We're talking with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us here today on AOA. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. All right, coming up next, we're going to head back to the Cattle Industry Convention and listen to a conversation I had with Kent Backus from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That's on the way next here on AOA, Agriculture of America. Wheat growers of the North, it's time to push performance with Westbred Wheat. With regionally proven varieties like WB9606 with good stress tolerance and WB9719 with outstanding yield potential and excellent standability. Trust Westbred Wheat to help you get the most out of every acre. Now's the time. Boldly grow. Seize the season with Westbred Wheat. Performance may vary. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. 
You're listening to AOA. Here's a check of the market trade this hour. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at what's going on in the commodity and livestock trade, corded soybeans mixed a couple of cents around unchanged here while we have the wheat trade mostly higher, led by Chicago wheat here up double digits as we work through our Friday session. Cattle and hog trade finding some decent strength as well with Hogs actually leading to the upside, a little bit of a bounce there, it appears, from Thursday's lower trade action. Now, of course, the USDA report that we got on the day on Thursday was uh, mostly neutral to bearish. Uh, Really had an impact on the soybean side. USDA only lowered Brazil's soybean production by 1 million metric tons. That compares to Conab's number that came in down at sub 150, 149.4. So, The trade seemingly having to grapple with multiple different numbers out there on the size of that Brazil crop. USDA also raised the Brazil crop from last year, and that led to a cut in U.S. exports of 35 million bushels on the February WASDE report. Overall, again, bearishness from the WASDE commodity deflation still remains the central theme here across the markets, although it's looking like here at the end of the week we're trying to find a little bit of positivity to finish things out. Cattle and hog trade, I mentioned, uh, looking pretty decent to start. We're looking for more cash activity to develop here, especially on the cattle side as we go to the end of the week. Taking a look at some of the ranges here, some of the numbers we're seeing across the board, corn and soybeans again, a couple of cents either side of unchanged here as we work through our Friday action. The wheat markets are where we're seeing the most activity, double-digit gains in the Chicago complex leading the way to the upside. And again, mixed activity uh, right now in the cattle and hog trade with hogs leading higher, some triple-digit gains there. Crude oil hovering just above $77 a barrel, up about 1%. You're listening to AOA. It's Check of the Markets for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Teachers are dynamic leaders, shaping a new generation. They bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise. They're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, connecting cultures, and connecting with each other, leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org, a campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org, and one million teachers of color. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Well, I've been traveling a lot here the last uh, two weeks, basically. I've been all over the country from Florida to North Dakota to Tennessee, and uh, we still have plenty of uh, interviews that we haven't been able to share with you yet here on the program because we've just had a lot going on. Well, I had a conversation 
back at the Cattle Industry Convention in Orlando with Kent Backus from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We talked about a lot of the uh, recent tax-related news that a lot of farmers and ranchers need to know about. So let's listen to that conversation right now back at the Cattle Industry Convention in Orlando with Kent Backus from the NCBA here on Agriculture of America. Joining us now here at the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show, Kent Backus with the NCBA Executive Director. Kent, it's good to see you again in good person. To see you too. I know we've talked a few times, you know, virtually over the phone, whatnot, but it's always good to see you in person. And, uh, you know, when we could do it in sunny Florida, what better, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, I haven't seen the sun much. It's been mainly <laughs> the fluorescent lighting in these meeting rooms, but, you know, I really enjoy being here just. You get yeah. to see great people from all over the country. Well, I know there's a lot to talk about, which is why you've been in those meeting rooms. And uh, I, I want to just quickly touch on this. We saw Wednesday evening the House passed a, a pretty sweeping tax legislation. A lot in there in terms of bonus depreciation and things like that. Talk about what we, we've passed through the House here, Kent. Sure. So this was an end-of-the-year tax package. So, of course, Congress waits till the very last day of January to pass a bill they were supposed to pass in 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, so included in that is bonus depreciation. It bumps that back up to 100%. There's, uh, you know, some... Uh, uh, relief on Section 179 that's going to bump that back up to 1.29 million, and then uh, there's uh, some provisions in there too. That uh, so if you've received uh, if you received any kind of funding uh, because of wildfire damages and stuff like that, then that's not included in your income. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't know that was a case to begin with, but I mean, I'm glad they finally corrected that. Sure. I mean, talk about pouring salt in a wound, but mm-hmm. uh, but anyways, there's some good things that are included in there. Uh, a lot of other things we don't have time to get into today, but uh, this was something that you know probably the you know, the other big factor with that was the child tax credit. Yeah, and that was the big source of contention. But you know that's been uh, uh, you know funded, I believe, at two thousand uh, per Some, child, something, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. So I know a lot, yeah. that, a lot that goes into it uh, for sure. And thinking on the tax front, you were telling me about this, uh, that I, I wasn't fully aware of what you guys were doing here, so I'm glad you brought it up. NCBA has been doing a tax survey. Uh, talk about that a little bit for us. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for the last several months, we've been uh, we've been asking our members for feedback. And mm-hmm. we did this through an anonymous survey that we, we launched. And uh, for those who are interested, it's on our website at ncba.org. It's at the top of the policy page. Uh, we've been targeting cattle producers just to say, hey, how do these tax provisions affect you? Uh, have you been impacted by the death tax? Have you, you know, what, how do the different capital gains provisions affect you? There's a lot of other things that are out there. Uh, and, and so we've really tried to get a better picture of all of these provisions that are set to expire at the end of 2025. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to take all of this information, and uh, probably in early April we're going to we're going to publish this report, and we're going to use that for advocacy over the next year, year and a half. Because there's a lot of members of Congress who have very little understanding of how those letters and numbers in the tax code actually impact our family-owned businesses and operations. And so uh, you think about it: over half the House of Representatives wasn't in office the last time Congress mm-hmm. voted. So in 2017, when they did the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there are a lot of folks, those folks aren't here anymore. And, you know, you've got a dozen or so senators who've never had to take these positions either. 
you got a lot of staff that are going to be advising them. They were in high school and college the last time this came up. So there's a big, big education gap, and that's on us because Uncle Sam's got a greedy, greedy habit of spending. He's not going to turn that around anytime soon. We've got a $34 trillion debt, mm-hmm. and so we've got a big revenue issue, which means that all of these provisions are on the chopping block. So we have to step up and defend them. We have to fight for a tax code that's going to be beneficial for farmers and ranchers. And we got to do that by personalizing the tax code. And so that's why we've been pushing this survey. We've got several hundred responses. We're going to keep it open through the end of February. So I'd encourage, if you're a, a, cattle, a cattle producer out there, visit our website. Let's take this survey. Uh, that'll help us really as we start to target uh, all these House and Senate offices mm-hmm. going forward. Um, yeah, but overall, you know, our policies are set by our members. And we've had a very robust discussion here this week. Uh, we've got pretty good direction, but the results of this survey are, are really going to give us guidance as to what the priorities are and where the big concerns are mm-hmm. out in cattle country. Not to spoil the results, but what are some of the what's the big thing you're hearing? What's the big concern looking ahead to 2025 from many of the uh, the ranchers and cattle producers who are here at the show this week? Well, you know, the preliminary results, we've already pulled some already just Mm -hmm. as of January 1st. And, you know, I'm sad to say, but, you know, we've got, you know, nearly 40% of the survey respondents have already had to pay the estate tax once. They've already Mm -hmm. been impacted by Mm -hmm. it. But the big concern is that if, uh, if Congress fails to do anything by the end of 2025, then the estate tax relief, those those uh, levels that we have right now that are adjusted for inflation, all of that falls down to that $5 million per individual, $10 million per couple. Now that's adjusted for inflation. That's probably closer to $6 million, but still, you look, at, you look at land prices, you look at all of the results of uh, inflation over the last few years, that's going to hit a lot of people. And that was one of the things that we saw in the survey, is that close to 60% of the respondents would be affected by that change. Mm-hmm. So... We're not just fighting for the repeal of the estate tax. We're also fighting for, for greater relief. So this is a, this is an important tool that it's, it's going to help us. But, you know, we also have a lot of people who want to wade in on income tax, on capital gains, on a lot of the other things that are out there. So uh, this is a – it, I know it sounds like uh, it'd be pretty heavy and people may be deterred, be like, ah, I don't like talking about taxes anyway, but this is 10 minutes of your time. We're not asking you to bring your CPA to fill this out. We're just asking for your opinion. Yeah, you know, has this impacted you, and and you know what could be better? Do you worry that presidential politics could play a role in this whole tax process as we look towards twenty twenty five? Obviously, I mean it's an election year. I know that can it can make it silly season. Do you think that's going to have any sort of impact on any of this at all? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if you look at uh, you you look at the divisions in Congress, and yeah, this is always the debate of well, you know, make the wealthy pay for everything, or well, the the poor aren't carrying their share. There's always finger pointing. There's names name calling and everything else. We're going to see that in the committee hearings. We're going to see that by every politician that's that's running for office. This is an election year. Of course we're going to see mm-hmm. that. This is setting the stage for next year. So in the meantime, what they're saying in public, yes, they're all going to they're all going to, you know, talk about all these all these things. Uh, but this is about the education. When you have that one-on-one yeah. meeting cuz all these politicians are going to be home this summer, they're going to be telling you what a great job they've done and how they you need to send them back to Washington. And I think it's time for get them on the record and find out where they are on these these important tax provisions. 
Another important topic I want to ask you about before yeah. we run out of time, uh, Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, we're hearing a lot about this. I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks are confused, yeah. don't know what's all going on, the reporting requirements that are tied with this, et cetera. Get us up to speed. What's going on? So Corporate Transparency Act, new law that took effect on January 1st. So if you have an existing LLC before 2024, you have until the end of 2025 to file a beneficiary uh, report. Uh, Beneficial disclosure. ownership. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Disclosing your beneficiaries and all that stuff to uh, the Treasury Department. And uh, if you create an LLC in 2024, you have 90 days to comply. Uh, so it, it essentially, it affects uh, you know companies with 20 employees or, or less. Mm -hmm. uh, it it seems to be more of a clerical thing, but there are penalties involved if you fail to report. So that while there are some exclusions, I think you know banks and insurance companies aren't aren't hit by this. Uh, this is a very important thing that everybody should talk to to their tax preparer and find out if this is something that could affect them. Because if you willfully fail to disclose this information, it does carry jail time. Uh, but it's also got penalties of five hundred dollars per day uh, per day of all the uh, for every day that you're out of compliance. So, uh, I mean, if it's a clerical thing and it's something you can do, then you know that's fine. But consult with your tax preparer and find out. I've heard some chatter from folks that this whole thing is, uh, it's, well, some want to say they're, it's trying to do, be a gotcha thing, but it's also, you know, some are saying that it's one of those where they're trying to cut down on things like money laundering or whatever yeah. the case is, is kind of the reasoning behind this. But to your point, it, it largely seems very clerical in nature. It is. And I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the justification for doing this was to go after Russian oligarchs and the Chinese Communist Party sure. and a lot of yeah. front companies, and they were trying to funnel money through the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, it is going to hit about 32 million Americans, so find out if you're one mm -hmm. of the, the 32. And Average Joe like me who has a single-owner LLC myself, I got a report. Yeah. You know, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it's a, and, and if you think about how many operations have multiple LLCs and then the no two operations are the same. So no. if, just because your neighbor does doesn't mean you have to. But likewise, you know, don't wait to find out. Like, have those conversations now and, uh, and, and you know, hopefully uh, get that box checked before it's too late. Definitely. A lot of issues to stay on top of. I know we will be talking again, I'm sure, real soon. Kent, thanks for the time here at the uh, Cattle Industry Convention. Always good to see you and have a conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Once again, really insightful stuff, great conversation, many things that folks need to know on the tax front there, and more. Uh, great to talk with Kent Backus back at the Kennel Industry Convention in Orlando. All right, coming up next, before we wrap up today's AOA, we've gotten the news earlier this week of that dicamba ruling that is uh, vacating the use of dicamba, taking a tool out of the toolbox for farmers here uh, for the 2024 growing season, potentially. We're going to learn more about that and what is at stake. Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Agricultural Retailers Association, joins us next on AOA. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. 
so millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You can't escape a traffic jam. Know what else you can't escape? Seasonal allergies. And you might think you can avoid that coffee stain until... Oh, really? You can't escape a lot of things in life, but you can escape prediabetes. Prediabetes captures one in three adults. There are usually no signs of prediabetes. In fact, most people don't even know they have it. But with early diagnosis, you can change the outcome and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Take action by taking the one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. You might not be able to escape having this song stuck in your head. But you can escape prediabetes. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Courtney Hall, Senior Director of Sustainability with CHS, will provide a low-carbon fuel standard update. Courtney, what is a low-carbon fuel standard, or LCFS for short? Low-carbon fuel standard are rules that are developed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector. They're developed state by state and are often the driving force behind the use of renewable fuels in that state. Well, what constitutes a low-carbon fuel? Well, low-carbon fuel is pretty simple and straightforward. It provides energy but reduces the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, or carbon, compared to a conventional fossil fuel. There are a lot of very familiar low-carbon fuels that you know your listeners might be very familiar with. Ethanol is an example of a low-carbon fuel. Biodiesel, renewable diesel, those are all examples of low-carbon fuels. Well, what states have adopted a LCFS and do you see it growing? So California was the first state to adopt a low-carbon fuel standard. They started implementing theirs in 2011, so they've been at this for some time. Their goal is to reduce 20% of emissions by 2030. Oregon is the next state that came on with a low-carbon fuel standard. It is mostly modeled on the California program, and the latest one is Washington State. Their program went into effect January 1 of last year. We do think that other states are watching what's happening on the West Coast, and they're starting Starting to kick around their own LCFS programs. There are likely developments happening in Illinois and Minnesota. Well, why should farmers care about low carbon fuels? Renewable fuels, you know, they start from the farm. They're based on crops grown on the farm, corn, soy, etc. So these fuel standards are creating demand for these types of commodities. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870 
you'll receive a tax deduction and will arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Well, we just saw here uh, earlier in the week a federal judge vacating the 2020 dicamba registrations by the EPA. The ruling in the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona leaves farmers without options to use dicamba in the upcoming growing season. Here to talk about this and share some perspective with us, he's the president and CEO of the Agricultural Retailers Association. Darren Kopik is with us. Darren, thanks for joining us here on AOA. So give us a little more background. Tell us what exactly is going on with this uh, court ruling and how it's going to affect farmers here in the upcoming growing season, Darren. Well, the ruling that was handed down by the district court in Arizona said that EPA made a procedural error in terms of how they did notice and comment when they reauthorized those labels back in 2020. And I can tell you from our experience working with the people at EPA, they know how their system works. <laughs> they know how to check the boxes. And so I'm pretty skeptical that, that there was any serious violation of, of the procedure. Uh, and we have a lot of confidence in their ability to do these scientific assessments. That's really the, the issue for us is we've got a federal court now making decisions about what products we can use rather than a scientific regulatory agency making those decisions. And the, and the decision also comes at a really poor time for the whole industry. Yeah. I mean, you think about the poor timing of this. Uh, we're into February here, Darren. I know a lot of growers have already started making decisions about what they're going to putting the ground here for this spring planting season, what products they're going to use, especially I think our, our soybean and cotton farmers uh, in particular. So this is uh, very problematic in its timing, isn't it? It certainly is. And, you know, the growers have made their decisions about what kind of seed they want to plant, what kind of herbicide will go into that system to make that whole thing work. And so retailers are now stocking and probably even delivering some of these uh, products out to the growers. And then here, the district court, you know, basically, the, the wheels are in motion and they break the axle for us. And so we're, we're kind of stuck. And so the, the request that we're making of EPA, EPA still needs to make a, a, an announcement of a cancellation order. And they have some ability to, to do some, some policies on existing stocks of product, uh, emergency labels, some other kinds of things that they have at their disposal. And so that's what our request to them this morning was, is make sure that whatever the, the final decision allows product that was already in the channel to be used according to the current label. And there is a lot of precedent for EPA allowing that. Well, I know there's this has been an ongoing issue and an ongoing fight, mm -hmm. uh, I think, between you know a lot of environmentalists and more. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to have a, a bit of a different opinion on the use of over-the-top mm -hmm. applications of dicamba. Uh, this is this is something, yeah, again, Darren, it's been going on for quite some time, and it, we really, you know, we keep going back and forth on some of these issues surrounding dicamba, don't we? 
This one's been particularly controversial, especially at the farmer level. Uh, some farmers support the technology, some do not. Uh, our beef here isn't really with whether the technology is right or not. It's with where these decisions are getting made. And so, you know, you mentioned that the activist groups keep challenging our portfolio in the courts, and any excuse they can find to tra- to challenge any pesticide, they'll do it. And it makes you wonder, you know, these these people must be in favor of starvation, or they like worms in their salad and nematodes in their potatoes. Otherwise, I'm not quite sure why they'd be trying to take away all of our tools. Well, you mentioned uh, the encouragement uh, that you guys have sent to EPA, uh, looking for them to uh, find uh, some ways uh, around some of this flexibility with emergency labels and cancellation orders, and, and you know things like that. So, realistically, here, Darren, what what's our next step forward? How soon would we need to hear something from EPA to have some more certainty on being able to use products here in this 2024 growing season? What's what's the timeline looking like? Well, everybody's on pins and needles waiting to see what EPA does. I think the first decision that they'll need to make is whether they appeal the decision. And if they do, it would go to the Ninth Circuit, and they could request that the ruling be stayed until the appeal is heard. Uh, that would at least give us some more breathing room to, to continue stocking product and be prepared for the season. Uh, so between that, between them issuing a, a cancellation order, uh, those are the things that we're waiting for, and, and uh, it could happen at any time. Now, uh, as we're waiting again, I mean, in anticipation, if something in go doesn't happen, so to speak, and if uh, dicamba is uh, not allowed here in the 2024 season, I mean, from the retailer perspective, where do they go from here, and, and how do they work with growers for this upcoming season if dicamba is not allowed? What do you think? Well, it's a it's a huge can of worms. <laughs> There's all kinds of ways this could go wrong, and, and a lot of them are, are bad for the environment. Um, but, uh, you know, if we get in a situation where there isn't a way to use product that's in the channel, then retailers have inventory in their warehouse that they can't sell. They can't even ship it back to the manufacturer without a special permit because its registration would no longer be valid. And so they're they're left with a, a an untenable choice of, of sitting around with it in the warehouse, hoping that we get a new label, getting some special permission or a take back program from the manufacturer to send the stuff back, or uh, like exporting it to some other foreign country that hasn't banned it. Those are the options that they have, and none of them are very good. Well, Darren, again, it's an issue we're going to have to watch to see how this plays out in the courts and with EPA and more. Final thoughts uh, for farmers uh, listening in, retailers listening in on, on what they need to keep in mind and pay attention to. What would you tell them? What would you reiterate to them today? I think just keep your ears on. Uh, we're engaged in it. I know the Soybeans and Cotton Council folks are engaged in it. Crop Life America is engaged in it. So uh, a lot of us are trying to, to get a, a decision that we can work with uh, within the parameters the EBA has to operate in. And uh, just stay tuned, I guess. All right. Well, we will stay tuned. And folks can also find more info aradc.org that's the website for the agricultural retailers association with that their president and ceo darren Kopic. darren thanks for joining us here and giving us an update on the dicamba issues here on aoa we'll talk to you again real soon appreciate it sounds good thanks jesse
And once again, Darren Kopik there with the Agricultural Retailers Association. All right, we're out of time here on the program today. Coming up on our next show, we'll talk markets with Darren Newsom from Bar Chart. We'll look at weather with John Baranek from DTN. And also, we're going to hear a conversation I had with the newly elected president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Mark Isley from Wyoming. All that and more coming up on our next AOA. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fantastic rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen. Appreciate you listening to Agriculture of America. Have a great day. From grain and livestock market analysis to policy updates affecting agriculture, the latest agricultural weather, ag news headlines, and much more, we have you covered as your trusted voice in agriculture. Get up to the minute information with the American Ag Network on air, online, and on demand. Find us on your favorite social media platforms and follow the American Ag Today podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. We are the American Ag Network. And we're back looking at another lopsided matchup, Jim. Today we have a combine taking on a train. Yeah, that heavy train is about a thousand times heavier than the combine. No competition there. Right, especially given that it'll take at least a mile to stop that train. That's 18 football fields. It's no contest. Every day people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. See tracks, think train. This message brought to you by Operation Lifesaver. My name is Ariel. When I arrived in the U.S. at 19, I struggled to find job opportunities without my high school diploma. My entire life changed when I took a chance and got my high school diploma at age 22. Everything I have, my education, my career, my marriage, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and my teachers. They were with me every step of the way, helping with my English and math, making sure I pushed through all the challenges. Ariel. Your success proves that what I'm doing as a teacher has real meaning. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. Education was the key that unlocked all my opportunities. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.